So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 1 is going to be our text this evening. We'll be looking at Acts 1 and Acts 2. Uh, We're going to be talking about why Pentecost should be as big of a holiday or a holy day uh, on our church calendars as Christmas and as Easter are, which... I know that's putting it in big company, but I think it deserves to be on that, on, on that tier list or on that same plane as those other two big events. So uh, in the trilogy of events, think about it that way. You've got your favorite books or your favorite movies. Uh, often they come in pairs of three. They come in trilogies. Uh, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, if you want to think of Christianity or the origin story of Christianity as a trilogy, um, there is... The Christmas story, which is the culmination of thousands of years of waiting and longing for God to respond to a world that was hurting, a world that was broken. Uh, God entered that creation, entered our creation that had drifted from him. Uh, Just his presence alone gave the world hope. Uh, Just the presence of God with us alone uh, promised that no matter whether he fixed anything or not, whether things changed or not, that God was with us. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. That's the promise of Christmas. Of course, the second part of the story is Easter. And Easter uh, tells us that Jesus didn't just come to pat the world on the back and say, I hope, hope things get better. Uh, Jesus didn't come to, to, to just uh, coexist with the mess that we have. He came to uh, redeem us. He came to bring about change. Now, we know that Jesus put God on display. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know who God is and how God thinks and how God feels about you, uh, look at Jesus. God is on display so that he can be known by all. And then God put Jesus on display on the cross so that all could be saved. Jesus proved that God was a loving heavenly father who wants the best for his children. Uh, He also made it clear that we don't always know what's best for ourselves. So if you look at the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the interactions of Jesus and the people that he uh, was around, we, we see it clear that Jesus showed the heart of God. But he also exposed the heart of people like us, that we think we know what's best, but we we don't. Jesus revealed that sin is in all of us, working against us, and he went to the cross to defeat its power. He died to undo a curse that was over all of humanity, over all the world, and of course he rose again, opening the gates to a brand new reality. But that reality, as the third act reveals, would not transform the world necessarily. It wouldn't change the nature of this world. It wouldn't change the systems of this world. The world would remain fallen for a time to come. Uh, But the third act reveals that God would do his work one person at a time. Jesus exposed that our world indeed had a systemic flaw. At its core, our world was far from God by nature. And the world and its institutions sit opposed to God by default. That there is nothing of this world, no system of this world, no institution of this world that naturally cooperates with God. All of the things of this world, including us, are opposed to God, uncooperative with God. Jesus' death and resurrection didn't fix all that automatically, although one day he will change everything. One day this world will be restored in full, but until his kingdom moves this kingdom aside, he is at work changing lives of every person on earth. Because, well, he wants us to be a part of that kingdom, he t- and it takes individual choices to get to participate and enter in to that kingdom. If God had just rolled kingdom age from the very moment of the resurrection, if Jesus had rose again and had installed or instituted the kingdom from that moment on, ridding the world of all sin, ridding the world of all sinners, nobody would have gotten to enter into it. 
It would have just been Jesus because we would have all been destroyed with the world because we are fallen. And it takes an individual response, an individual choice to receive Jesus into our hearts and to enter into his kingdom. Jesus told Nicodemus most famously that unless a man or a woman, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus made it very clear that change comes about individually, one person at a time. Every person has to respond to the gift that God has provided. Every individual has to make a choice to turn towards him. Adam and Eve chose to rebel. We must choose to respond to the gift of God's grace. So Easter provided the means for salvation. It kick-started a new age where earth would be waiting for redemption, but people could experience it in the meantime. And, and this is the meantime. This is why Jesus talked about the world after he would leave, after he would die and rise again. Jesus talked about what the world would look like. And he didn't talk about a kingdom as they expected, a kingdom free of all uh, imperfections and all sin. Uh, they didn't imagine that it might would exclude them if that were to happen. But he talked about something different. He talked about building a church that the gates of hell would not prevail against, that even though hell would still be a force to be reckoned with, the church would prove to be more powerful, prove to be able to endure against the, the flames of hell and begin bringing people out of darkness into light he commissioned his disciples to be fishers of men he called them to a great commission pointing them to the age on the horizon where the kingdom would be rolling out one salvation at a time and that's where the third act of the redemption story opens up the third act of the redemption story is pentecost i think it's important that we make this note nobody Nobody saw this next phase coming. Even though Jesus planted the seeds talking his, about his disciples having a job to do after his resurrection and also after he rose again, he hung around for a while. He was with them for over a month, showing up here and there, emphasizing the importance of their community that he had built and how its purpose was about to take full shape. But they thought something different was coming. They still were set on the kingdom. They were still thinking the kingdom age was coming soon. But they had learned by now that Jesus operated at different speeds, and they were trying to be patient. But after about 40 days, they thought they had waited enough. They thought they had been patient enough. But they quickly realized they had no idea what Jesus' next move was and how they were a part of that next move. So it's on that uh, note we're going to look at Acts chapter 1. We're going to read through verse number 11. We have a little bit of a prologue that Luke, Luke gives us to introduce us to this uh, part of the, of the story, this part of the redemption story. And then verse 4 will begin to give us the details in this post-resurrection world. So Luke, wrote, who wrote the first account, now writes another account. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, uh, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom he presented himself alive after his suffering or his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Luke's about to tell us that what God saw, what, what God's idea of the kingdom was much different than their idea of the kingdom. Their idea of the kingdom was that the world was going to be perfected, that all the bad people were going to be taken away, and they assumed they were good people so they would get to say. But, but that's not the, the age that, that Luke says is what starts up here. So verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. 
for he had said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I love that this is why I believe the Bible is inspired, because the, the, the stories aren't perfect. <laughs> the, 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 story, the conversations aren't, they weren't always expecting things to happen like they should have expected them to happen. They write in their own ignorance. They write in their own misunderstanding. So even though Jesus had told them clearly, hey, y'all, I'm not doing that. We're going to do something different. I'm building a church. Y'all are going to go fish for men. They still write in their honesty. They write in their, their, their unawareness or their, their cluelessness, which again shows us that they were just like us. They didn't see the full picture. And, and that makes, I think, the story even more relatable, more believable. So they ask him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says to them, because uh, he'd heard that question a lot, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put on his own authority, but you, but this is what you should be focused on. This is what you should be concerned about. This is what you should be worried about uh, being a, a part of. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me or of me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They weren't expecting that. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, two men, behold, two men, two angels stood by them in white apparel, and also said, men of Galilee, and this is one of the most convicting questions that you can, you can read or you can hear, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in like manner as you saw him go unto heaven. The, the, the point is, why are you standing here gazing up when he's told you what you are about to do? Why aren't you getting prepared for that and getting ready for that? Of course, it, it, this was all new to them. This was all a little bit shocking to them. This sets up what takes place in Acts 2, which is in the festival day or in the festival season of Pentecost. So, just to kind of bring this back together, remember I said earlier, I think Pentecost should be on your list as, as important as Christmas and Easter are. Uh, Christmas brings to us the idea, God with us, as in God is near to us. God has come to be near to our fallen world. Easter gives us the idea, God is for us, as in you cannot argue that God is not for you because Jesus literally died for you. So God is with us, as in on a corporate level, on a worldly level, on a universal level. God has moved closer to us who have been drifted away from him. God is for us who have fallen away from him and have disobeyed him. Pentecost brings us the idea, God within us, in our very midst. Not just in a general sense, as in he's somewhere out there close by. He is in our own hearts. And not just is God within us, but God is at work through us. We become participants in the story. We've witnessed God at work, but on Pentecost, God called on his church to be witnesses for this entire age. And the thing about God's third act, the thing about the third act of the redemption plan, it started on Pentecost, and it's still going. Christmas took place on a day. Think about this. Christmas took place on a single day. We celebrate it December 25th. It took place a single day in time. But the fulfillment for generations, it was, was, it was the fulfillment of longing of generations, but it took place on one day. 
Easter played out over Jesus' three-year ministry. But then that last week was unforgettable and, of course, world-changing, life-changing. Pentecost was the beginning of the church movement. It started on a day, but the train has kept going. Do you see what I'm talking about? Christmas was a one-time event. God with us, born among us. Easter is a one-time, you know, sequence of events. Jesus dies, he rose again. But Pentecost started on a single day in history. But it has continued and continues and will continue until kingdom comes. So I, I told you, I've told you this before probably. Maybe your Bibles have this mark on it. In Acts 1-1, Luke so, 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 uh, so specifically states that I wrote to you all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Comma. So Luke wants us to know from the very beginning of this book that this is not a story of something that happened and ended. This is the story of something that started, but it keeps going. As in the movement that begins in Acts is still going to this day. You are a part of that movement today. He began this work. And he continues this work right here, right now, all over the world. And down in verse 8, he says, you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem was their hometown. Judea was their province. It was the overall, overall area that they lived in, the country they lived in. Samaria was the neighboring country that they really didn't think too much of, never intended on going. And then we have that, the ends of the earth. Church, we're still finding ends of the earth that the gospel hasn't yet reached. We're still finding corners of the earth that we haven't yet impacted. People that have not been saved yet. In every generation, there's more people that need to be reached. So the movement keeps going. The, the work keeps going. This is beginning in Acts 1, but it doesn't stop in Acts 1 or even Acts 28. God's choice way of reaching the world is through his church. And the, one, the only way the church can accomplish this goal is by relying on and activating the spirit of God that he has promised every one of us. Pentecost matters. Why should Pentecost matter to you? Because Pentecost traces every church and every church member, every Christian, back to a single life source, a single power source. God in us and God in us through us. So just like there's only one Jesus, just like there's only one work of the cross and work of the resurrection, there's one church that gets started in Acts chapter 2. There's one church that is born on Pentecost, and we're still a part of that single movement. It's a big deal, isn't it? There's one Jesus, there's one cross, there's one resurrection, and there's one church. So we better fall in line with this one church or what we're doing isn't really church at all. I think understanding Pentecost as this third act of the larger redemption story has a twofold purpose. It tethers us to God's continued activity. It makes us think, okay, are we in line with what God has been, been doing since the beginning? Are we in line with how he started it? Are we walking and, and, and moving in that same spirit? It tethers us to the activity that began on Pentecost, but it also protects us from being detached from the greater mission that we are all accountable to and all called to be a part of. No church is a church at all if we don't fall in line 
with this mission that began in Acts chapter 1 and 2. There's one church, there's one movement traced back to Acts 1 and 2, and that is the day of Pentecost. What this really does is it confronts our own ideas and our own pictures of church. It challenges any preconceived ideas we have about church because I'm pretty comfortable in assuming that a lot of us, uh, a lot of the, the initial responses um, aren't as spelled out as before us, as in a lot of us have our ideas that aren't necessarily in line with what we see commissioned here in Acts and, and what we see throughout history. I don't think there's a lot of overlap there. So Acts forces us to reconcile our version with the version. You see, when we think about church, we think about places and services and traditions and styles. We think about songs and sermons, and we think about, you know, who we set beside, who we set across from, who we always avoid. We think about Sunday school and special Sundays and Bible studies and all kinds of programs. And while all those things are great, it's apparent that church doesn't always bring to mind the movement that God started. Church, to a lot of people, is whatever they have created it to be and, and intended it to be. It's not necessarily in line with what the Scriptures prescribe, and a lot of people aren't really concerned with that. It doesn't bring to mind the point in history and time, this movement that began that we're still a part of. While in some ways, you know, it's, it's awesome that the church has grown from this origin point and become so many different things and look so many different ways. But, but it could be that our own possession of the church has emptied us of the possession of God's Spirit. It could be our own control over the church has taken us out from under God's control. So, so what if... What if the church was never something we were supposed to possess or control, but what if, what if it was always about us being vessels that God poured himself into and worked through? What if it was always uh, about us being attached to and tethered to this movement as it began in Acts? And, and what if being a church member means so much more than we've assumed it to be? What if it's really about a movement, and what if the church to us should be about representing this movement and participating in this movement rather than just being a part of some static institution? What if every Sunday should remind us of Pentecost? What if we looked to our origin story for our inspiration? And I think this is a big deal. I think every deacon's meeting, I think every prayer meeting, I think every uh, you know, board meeting or whatever the church does, I think everything the church thinks about and, and puts its mind to do, every service, every Bible study, uh, I think every church activity ought to look back to Pentecost and think, are we in line with what God started? Are we inspired by the spirit of the movement that began way back then? Now, these may be unnecessary questions to ask in some people's mind, but beside my reading of the Scripture, here's another reason why I'm asking these questions. Because a lot of us, we think about my church and our church, and we think about our good memories— Maybe you think about some bad memories because there's a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions about church. Some people love their church and it's their, they've always been there. Some people have some pretty bad memories about church and that's why they don't go to a church because they've had some bad experiences. Uh, maybe someone mishandled church and misbehaved and it, and it affected you in, in, in a certain way. Or maybe um, you still go to church and, and, and you're here tonight so you do. You still go to church but maybe there's something in you that still kind of longs for the glory days that are gone and, and you think about back then in. You think about that preacher and that, those singers, and, and yeah, you're still in church, but it's just not as good as it used to be. I don't know what you think about when you think about church, and I don't know what you think about when you think about your church or our church or my church, 
But the good news is the movement that started in Acts 1 and 2 is much more important than whatever movement we have been a part of or haven't been a part of, whatever church we attended that we don't attend anymore, or whatever thing that started that stopped and we wish it would have kept going. Whatever situation hasn't went the way you wanted it to go in your time, the good news is the work that God started 2,000 years ago is still going. And I would love for there to be overlap in what you've experienced and what God started, but sometimes there won't be, and sometimes you've got to go back to the origin story to get back in sync with how it was always supposed to be and what you can find inspiration for in spite of what might not be going as you intended it to be or as you would like it to be in your local church. So whether it brings good memories or difficult memories, this is about a movement, not memories. Because just like Christmas is bigger than us, just like Easter is bigger than us, Pentecost reminds us that church is bigger than us. We have been invited to be part of something so much bigger than us. So if I could somehow help you reclaim what church means to you, not to diminish or dismiss your own understanding, your preferences, but to add something to go alongside those things. Church can mean all the things that it means to you if that's how you like it. Uh, but it, and it doesn't have to, to, to mean some of the things that, uh, that, that people have told you. It, it, hopefully this releases you from things that maybe aren't even biblical. But I'm not really interested in changing your mind or your preferences as much as I'm interested in adding to your mind how much more than anything, church has always been about a movement of God of which you are invited to join, of which you are expected to join and participate in. We are invited to receive the power source, the life source of God's spirit, God within us and God working through us. And, and that, that phrase, life source, not a word you use every day, but that means anything that's necessary for sustaining life. And it's, it goes without saying, the life source of the church is the spirit of God who empowers us and directs us and guides us. All throughout history, people have longed for God's presence but within us, God within us might seem a little bit too good to be true, but that is exactly the reality we have as Christians. Think about this. Jesus was and is God's incarnation. He is God made flesh, but he's just one person. We are near him in salvation, but the beautiful thing of the local church, the beautiful thing about being part of the church is the church is an incarnational institution, as in the church is God in flesh, but brought together in an institutional way. When the Bible says that we are the body of Christ, you are the body of Christ, individually members of it, that is a way of showing you the church is symbolically the body of Christ, so we get to be a part of his body in that institutional, symbolic way. And as his body, both institutionally and individually, we are filled with the power that was promised in Acts 1, verse 8. But what is that power for? To what end is that power meant? To give us this new identity, to send us on this mission, to be the church, and to grow the church, to be the movement? I want you to look down at verses 12 through 14, and I want to, I want to pick up on some key verbs the church was all about and should always be about. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they entered, they went unto the upper room, which was their initial gathering place, where they were staying. That means they were not just visiting every once in a while. This wasn't a, a weekly thing or a, a couple times a month thing. This was a, this was a lifestyle for these guys. 
and, and gals. It, it says there was Peter and James and John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas. And these all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So we see the early church, the earliest church, the 12, uh, the 11 disciples, some, some other witnesses of the resurrection. And we see the family of Jesus who have all gotten on board and, and some of the other women that supported Jesus. But we see they're doing four things in this passage. We see in verse 13, they were staying together as in they were making frequent visit together. Verse 14 said they, says they were in one accord. And, and then it says they were, uh, they were continuing or devoted to prayer. So four things. They were staying together. They were uniting together. They were devoting themselves to the work together. And they were praying together. Uh, this is a bit foreshadowing. Uh, and there's a secret for us to follow if we want what happens next to be our reality. And that's why they go on to make a big splash. The reason they make a big splash is they were anticipating God and preparing for his work in their lives. So they were staying together as in they were committed. They weren't just visiting to see what was going to happen this Sunday and maybe they're out next week. They weren't just hanging around just to see if there was something to be oohed and on at. They were there and they were dedicated, committed to this. They, they, they were willing to stick it out no matter what might happen or what might not happen. They were staying together. They were in one accord, as in they were united together around this cause that Jesus said, y'all stick together because y'all got a work to do. They were devoted, as in they were pouring their lives into this work. They were giving to it. They were supporting it with their own lives. And they were praying together, as in they were knitting their hearts together and committing to do this God's way. So they didn't just meet. They didn't just have services. They didn't just serve their own wants or needs. They didn't just mind their own business in a corner. Uh, they meant business they were anticipating and preparing. Now, the circumstances surrounding opening day obviously were unique to that time and place, but I want you to just observe what we're told and what we're not told, what is said and what isn't said, and I want us to try to glean something from this very first day of business for the local church as we look at Acts 2. I want you to particularly notice and try to figure out if you can see their priority, if you can see their agenda. Acts 2, verse 1 through 7, we find them in that upper room when the day of Pentecost come. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. It says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So emphasis on the languages from verse 4 and the every nation in verse 5. And when this sound occurred, the multitudes came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not these who speak Galileans? And that's their way of saying, These guys can't know our language. They're not that smart. Now, I want you to think about the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel took place way long ago in history when all of mankind united to rebel against God. They didn't need God anymore. They were bigger than God, better than God. They were going to build a tower up to the heavens to say, we don't need God anymore. They had one language. They had one mission. They had one goal. And on that day, God confounded their languages to protect them from this unified affront against him. 
God confused their languages, and that was the origin of all the nations. And here we have, on Pentecost, all the nations in one place, because there were Jews in every nation at this point, scattered around the world after the exile, after they were took to different places in the Old Testament. So now we have, on Pentecost, a reverse effect of Babel. On Babel, God confused their languages to protect them, and on Pentecost, God unites their languages to prove to the world that he had overcome all the different barriers and all the different gaps and all the different hurdles that would prevent the world from hearing about him. When God confounded and confused and scattered the nations, he now brings them back together under one umbrella, under one redemption story. Just as they were once scattered, they're now gathered. Just as they're once confused, they're now all understanding. Just as they once all spoke different languages, now they all hear one language. Do you see the, the, the harmony there? How God brought back what was once scattered and what was once Severed. We see the disciples uh, go on to preach the gospel to these that were in their, that were gathered in Jerusalem for this festival. They bring a personal message to everyone based on God's work, something that happened in their backyard, something they saw with their own eyes, but also their own personal witness to it, as in how it had impacted their own hearts. So they're in the upper room, gathered together, praying. When the festival day comes, the Spirit of God fills their hearts for the first time. We can't imagine what that must have been like. But just like when you got saved, you received God's Spirit, that isn't too dissimilar to what they experienced. Now, they weren't just making noise in the building. They weren't just trying to to be rambunctious. They were uh, not just trying to get the outside attention. They went outside and got the attention of the people. And then it says uh, that the power they were given worked To the end, it was intended. They went out and they were witnesses. But the miracle of it all, they were surrounded by people from every nation who were making pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now, I want to make this clear, back on the the, the point about the languages. The Jews that lived around the world would have all spoke Greek because the Greek was the universal language. And you wouldn't go anywhere in those days, just like English is kind of the universal language today, just like it was before, once before French. It's, it was Greek in these days. So everybody would have spoke Greek, but God allows them to hear their native tongue so that they might be convinced this is a work of God, not man. This is the point, it isn't so much that it was necessary, but to remind us that the vision Jesus laid out was very much possible. So when they, back in verse 8, when they were told to go to the ends of the earth, how are we going to do that, Jesus? We can't, even, we can't even imagine overcoming stuff in those barriers. Jesus lets them know right out of the gate, I can handle the barriers. I can handle the things that might be too difficult for you. We see that the Jesus movement was moving uh, was moving towards the whole world with good news for all meant to unite all people. Now, if you read the whole story, it says that uh, Peter goes on to quote the prophet Joel as in saying this was all predicted long ago. And then he begins to give them the simple gospel message, the simple message of salvation. So we're going to jump down to verse 21, the last verse that he quotes from Joel, and then read his words Uh, as he preaches to them. Uh, We won't read all of them, but just a a few here and there. So verse 21, uh, Peter says, This is what was said by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says to them, this era is now. This movement starts now. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose, the foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. As in, hey, y'all, this is a man we all knew. This is a man that clearly had the power of God in his life. You rejected him. You crucified him. You killed him. But God, 24, has raised him up, having loosed the chains of death, because it was not possible that he could be held by them. So, hey, y'all, you know Jesus, the man that you rejected, the man that you killed? God has raised him up, and we are witnesses. We saw it, but more importantly, the spirit that raised him up now lives in us. Down in verse 32, he says, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are witnesses. That word witnesses is more than just we saw it. It means we are participating in his movement. We have seen him. We have followed him. We have been changed by him. And we are are proof of what he can do. So when you're a witness for God, it's not just, hey, I saw this, but I've experienced something. Yes, it's rooted in what he did. Yes, it's tethered to what he did. And that's why Pentecost is so important. This, this ties us back to something that happened. Something that started so long ago. We are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. As in there, Peter says, y'all, what we're doing, what I'm preaching, what you've just witnessed, it's not of my own doing. It's not of our own work, our own knowledge, our own ability. This is God working through us. And that is such an important lesson for the church to learn. Because we do not come together on our own means, with our own ideas, with our own motives, with our own abilities, with our own initiatives, with our own agendas. We are here because the power of God has started this and we best be in line with what he started and what he wills because this is not our operation. We are not at our leisure. We are not the progenitors of this movement. We didn't come up with this movement. We are mere stewards of something that's bigger than us. It's more than just carpet and pews and bank accounts and styles and preferences. This is a sacred movement of the Holy Spirit. And we should tremble. I mean, we should tremble at the thought that we get to be a part of this movement. Christians, those of us that truly pursue God and want to be a part of this and really take serious this, we should tremble at the thought Not that we're entering into a building that was dedicated to God, but we are a part of a movement that doesn't just meet once a week or twice a week or three times a week, but is not ever off the clock. Verse 36, Peter says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know, assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And Peter says, boy, you can bet that we are living like that's true. Something happened. Somebody came for everyone everywhere to hear and receive from God. That is the good news, and we are holding that torch and carrying it forward. All throughout Acts, you can see that this is what defines the church and drives the church, and they spread the good news to everyone everywhere at all costs. Before there were Bibles, 
before there were bands, bandwagons to jump on, and things to boycott, there was the good news. And their priority was how can we get the good news to as many people as quickly with clarity? How can we get the good news to as many people as clearly as possible, as quickly as possible? Let me just make this as clear as I can for you. The church was not defined by a place, a time, or a style. The church was a vehicle fueled by the Holy Spirit. And this vehicle, the three most important things was, let's make it as reliable as we can, efficient as we can, and as maneuverable as we can. As in, we want people to know when the church rolls into town, when the movement of God rolls into their neighborhood, you can rely on them to tell you about God and tell you how to get to him and what he's done for you. There's no discrepancy. You don't have to wonder, hey, do I fit in? Do I get into that? Am I a part of that? It's reliably accurate and reliably transparent and reliable in terms of what it provides for you. And it's efficient as in the thing they're selling, it works. The thing they're offering, it works. The thing they're providing for you, it works. It changes your life. The church is reliable, it's efficient, and it's maneuverable. As in the church never panics. It never comes up to an impasse and says, oh, I don't know what to do. It continues to find a way to get forward, to go forward, to make progress. The church never is on jack stands. Because, yeah, there's a lot of obstacles in this world, but the church in Acts, it was maneuverable. It was versatile. By sticking to this simple agenda, this effective agenda, they stayed on mission, they avoided distractions, and as time would pass, just as Jesus predicted, the church became a gathering rallied around this one idea. It would be on every, na- every nation, in every tongue, every tribe would be a part of it, but it would be united around this one idea. Jesus is the resurrected Messiah, the Son of the living God. And the message was not attend, the message was join the movement. And these days you didn't go to church, there was no building, you were the church. It wasn't for church people because there weren't any, it was for all people. And they figured out how to fit everybody in. It wasn't about a location, it wasn't about a style, a liturgy, or a ritual, there weren't any of those. It was a movement about people who were devoted to following Jesus, dedicated to make followers of Jesus, and determined to go wherever he told them to go, to whomever he told them to go. From opening day forward, there has always been a group who refused to let go of this idea. They refused to make it about a time and place, a building, but it was about a body empowered by the, God, the Spirit of God. And throughout the ages, revolutionaries and missionaries and church planners and evangelists and translators and pastors and smuggle, people smuggling Bibles and teachers of all ages on every nation have not forgot what is the main thing, what is our main priority. Who, when they hear church... When they hear church, the first thing they think of is the movement that God started that is bigger than what I think and what you think and what we feel and what we want. It is the movement that goes all the way back to Pentecost. And it is a sacred thing to be a part of that. We fight so many battles. We write books about what our opinions are and how to preserve our version and why our version is best. But is that what it's all about? No. The versions are just meant to fulfill a vision, nothing more. It's about this vision and this mission to bring people to this place that we see in Acts 2.37. 
When they heard Peter's message, they were cut to their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? How can we get into this movement? And Peter says, Repent. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the promise to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. That includes you because you were afar off from this. You were 2,000 years later, but that meant it was still to you. As many as the Lord will call. As many as the Lord our God will call. So Peter's message, you want to join this movement? Change the way you are seeing the world, thinking about the world, and thinking about life in general. You are going to have to lay all that down. Turn away from that and turn your eyes on Jesus and be fully immersed. Baptized means means to be immersed in his teaching and his love and his will for your life. You will be forgiven of your sins and you will be empowered by the Spirit of God. Don't worry. The hard stuff is left in God's hands. He will change you in the blink of an eye. Verse 40, it says, With many other words, he testified and exhorted to them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. I mean, I I love how that verse is so evergreen because every generation is perverse. I know we might think ours is perverse, more perverse than ever, but Peter says his was. I don't know what they were up to back then. We might not think it's as bad as what we're up to, but hey, Peter says, you want to be saved from a perverse generation? Join the movement of God and go and tell people about what God can do. And it says that's what they did. Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And it goes on to say they steadfastly dedicated to the doctrine and fellowship with the, with, with the church. They broke bread. They prayed together. They came together. They stayed together. And they got to work. So, this message continues to see lives change. The church has the power to see lives change to this day if we stick with what has proven to work time and time again. If we join the movement and allow the power of God to continue to move through us. Allow the power of God to continue to move through us. The question is, God is still moving. Are you allowing him to move you? Are we moving stuff in his way or are we being moved by his way? In the way. Of Jesus Christ. Are we participating? Are we facilitating this movement? These questions are a must ask if we want to be a part of not my church, not your church, not our church, but his church. To summarize this, if you read the book of Acts, we see they had two non negotiables exalt Jesus and reach people. You know how you become a reliable church, a versatile church, a, a maneuverable church, and an efficient church? You get rid of everything that's fat on the piece of meat. All the fact that we argue about and fuss about and get all bent out of shape about, get rid of that stuff. You have two agendas. Exalt Jesus and reach people, you'll do well. Is it possible to do that? That's what we try to do every week. The presence and power of Jesus can be irresistible if we focus on being this movement. The church can be the most persuasive movement on the planet if we just let God do what he did at Pentecost. If we just let God change us and use us like he changed and used these common, normal men. So I want to leave you with with two things, church, that I think we should do. I think we need to repent. 
Not just because we, not because we need to be saved. Uh, if we're saved, we still need to repent because we're constantly changing, looking toward the world and looking toward our own agendas. We need to continue to repent, turn towards God, turn towards Him and trust in Him. That means, hey, God, I'm wrong, you're right. I want to be in your will. I want to be your movement. So I'm turning away from me. I'm turning towards you. And we need to lament. Lament means when our hearts are heavy because we don't realize how things, we don't understand how God's doing his work and we're confused and frustrated and overwhelmed because things aren't working out the way we wanted them to. We don't panic. We don't quit. We don't get upset. We don't wait for somebody else to get in office. We don't wait for things to change and we don't pray for things. We don't say, God, I can't do it unless you get rid of those people or change this thing and get rid of this month. We, we can't wait on that stuff. We lament. We go to God and say, God, this breaks my heart. I wish you would change it. I'm casting my emotions on you because I I don't want my emotions to keep me from serving you. Lament, tell God how you feel, but say, God, I'm not letting that stuff keep me from working for you because if they worked in their mess, I'm going to work in ours. If their generation was perverse and ours is too, they got through it, we can too. Yeah, God, it breaks my heart, it breaks your heart, but hey, that's why I need to get to work. This vehicle needs to be efficient and maneuverable. And we need to counter hellfire with heaven's fire. There's a lot of hellfire around this. But heaven's fire has been fallen since Pentecost and it still falls today. And if you don't think you've got the words to say, he gave them words to say. And he'll give you words to say too. With his spirit, we can have two things given to us. A prophetic voice and passionate visions. Prophetic voice means that God can give us the voice to speak out into a generation that maybe we don't know how to speak to and we don't know how to be bold enough to. But God can give you a voice of a prophet, a voice of someone who speaks into that darkness and speaks into that confusion and says, this is what God's word says. Not because we've made it up or it's come to us, it's written for us. We need those voices that are bold, those voices that are brave. And we need people with passionate visions as in, hey, God has be- began this movement and we see that he still wants to be a par- us to be a part of this movement. God, give us the clarity to see through the fog and see through the junk that gets in our way because, boy, it's trying to get in our way and discourage us. Pentecost was just the beginning. We can be revived by the promises and the power of that day. Be filled with God's Spirit. Revival is possible when we, when I surrender. Revival begins when I surrender, when I repent, when I lament, when I am emptied of this world's vanity and filled with heaven's fire. Hellfire cowers at the sound of voices and visions inspired by the the, the Spirit of God. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how much you have or don't have, what you've been through, what you haven't yet been through. If you want to be a part of the movement God started 2,000 years ago, you can be. You can be. If you're a part of a local church and this is, there's so much stuff in the way, the, the, the mission isn't always clear, the movement is, isn't always uh, seeming to be in action, then, hey, help be the change. Help get people back on track. Help focus their attention on what God started 2,000 years ago. Again, we should tremble. Not tremble at the preacher or tremble at the building. Tremble at the movement that God has made you a part of. The work that Jesus began 2,000 years ago, it's not finished. Acts 1-1 has a comma at the end of it. And what you're doing, what I'm doing, what we're doing, it's part of that story. So let's go and be part of history. We are very fortunate to have this opportunity. And I'm looking forward to continuing 
to continue to, to progress the story and to progress the movement of the church alongside you all. We pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this great and awesome opportunity you've given us to reflect on your promises, reflect on how you have included us in a movement that is so much bigger than us, so much beyond us, yet you have given us this opportunity, and God, we are so thankful for that. Father, I pray you might would make yourself known to each and every one of the hearts that are here tonight that are hungry and desiring to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Use this message and use this church, Lord, to always lead people closer to you and more in line with your vision. Father, I pray you might would be with us as as we celebrate Memorial Day. Help us to be thankful for those that gave their lives up for our country. That we might, as Americans, have an even special, more special opportunity to fan the flame of the church. Thank you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name.